0: Anybody that was feeling any kind of peacefulness or any kind of um, exhalation, to use a term that refers to breathing, which uh, uh, one George Floyd was not able to do, in late May, we we were reminded of how precarious all of our lives are, in general and and in particular in this society, and we were reminded that there is literally. No peace until there is justice, right? No justice, no peace is not a slogan so much as it is a poetic expression of a fundamental truth of our lives. No justice, no peace.
1: An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor
0: what I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly
1: I am finally free to be me I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious what does
0: life look like after church after religion after God
1: that's you know that's that's it in a nutshell this is the life after God podcast a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond, with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 90. My guest today is Greg Epstein, humanist chaplain at Harvard and MIT and a bunch of other stuff that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. We recorded this about two weeks ago during the peak of the uprisings around the country led by Black Lives Matter, the Movement for Black Lives, and others. For me, this was a very cathartic conversation that sort of ranged all over the place, and I think it gets better as it goes along. We'll see what you think. This has been a very difficult few months, to say the least. Personally, and as involved as I am locally, I feel exhausted, by the challenges that we're dealing with. I've been doing a lot of reading, trying to continue my education about U.S. history, the part that was left out when I went to school. I wrote something on Monday about this experience of sadness slash anger that's my daily companion these past several months. I don't think I even allow myself to acknowledge how I'm feeling until it basically knocks me out for a day. Over the weekend, I read Sakivu Hutchinson's new book, Humanist in the Hood, which is a scalding rebuke of mainstream humanism and a stark wake-up call about the mass marginalization of women, people of color, and especially women of color. Right now I'm reading Angela Saini's amazing book, Superior, A, because I want to, and B, because I'm preparing for a conversation with her in July that will be part of the Secular Student Alliance Conference. I'm also about to have a conversation with Katherine Stewart about her book, Power Worshippers, which will also be a part of the Secular Student Alliance Conference, I'll put uh, details about that in the show notes. So as I said, Greg Epstein is my guest on this episode. Many of you probably know Greg either from his work at MIT and Harvard, his book Good Without God, or his writing over the past year at TechCrunch, or maybe some combination of these. If you aren't familiar with his writing, I hope after this conversation you will check it out, and I'll post links, of course, to his work in the show notes. I would be remiss if I didn't say again how important it is that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners who contribute anywhere from a dollar to a hundred dollars a month to make it possible. I want to especially thank my friend Nathan Watkins, who is the newest advisor level member, and Jose, who just joined as a member last week. Thank you both so much for helping me keep this show going, especially now when times are so tough. If you've been appreciating the podcast, I want to thank you first for tuning in faithfully or even sporadically. That's the whole reason I do this, so you can hear and engage with the conversation. I would be so grateful if you became a supporter. Membership starts at $5 a month. If you want to join this group of highly intelligent and very handsome people who support the show, please visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. It would also be awesome if you would subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use. And leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. The reviews on Apple Podcasts, especially, help others find the show and is a great support to me. Okay, let's get to it. Greg Epstein, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thank you so much,
0: Ryan. It's it's great to finally talk to you.
1: Yeah, it's been it's it's been way too long, long overdue. I I feel like I've um, of all the sort of well known humanists and atheists in the in the secular community, um, you're probably one of the the last people on my list that I haven't, uh, I haven't spoken to. And, um, I had this sort of, um, you know, you know, interest in, in talking to you for so long, cause I read your book, uh, good without God, uh, towards the beginning of my, um, 2014 year without God journey. And, yeah. um, Yeah. So anyway, I've just been really, um, intrigued and, and impressed with the work that you do. And it's good to finally, finally talk to you. Thank you.
0: Likewise, I've, I've been wanting to talk to you for, for a few years now. Um, I've been, I feel like I've been learning a lot from you and with you politically and socially, um, as, as, as political and social issues become an increasingly large part of my version of humanism personally. And, um, So it's, it's just good to get a chance to talk to you about some of the things that have been on my mind, honestly. Like I, I I think we might get a chance to, uh, let's do that to, to, you know, purge some, some, you know, for, for me to vent about some things that have really been bugging me on this Mm. conversation, Mm -hmm. but it's also, you know, and it's interesting to know, okay, yeah, you were in, in 2014. Um, it was right around 2014 that I, I feel like I kind of hunkered down and, um, Focused very much on being locally involved in humanism, um, mm-hmm. creating local humanist community, as opposed to um, going out and, and doing um, doing humanist stuff nationally um, or internationally. Because uh, that had been a big focus of mine previously, and, and and by the time you were getting into this stuff, I, w- I was just um, I was getting a little tired of that, honestly.
1: Yeah. And I I mean, that's my impression as well. And I didn't know you before 2014 or know of you. But, you know, ever since I've been thinking and talking about these issues myself, uh, you know, I've known of you, but it's all I've always had the impression that you were, um, you know, sort of focused on, you know, Harvard and and the Harvard humanist community and and you didn't really travel that much. Um, and, and I had that same sort of, I guess, experience when I started into all of this, everybody's intrigued with the new pastor who left his faith. And so mm-hmm. there were no shortage of, um, unpaid speaking appointments <laughs> for yeah. about two years. I ran myself ragged for nothing. Well, not for right. nothing. I mean, I made a lot of friends, but I was also very, very poor. I had just lost my job as a pastor and was unemployed for large stretches of that. So it's, uh, but I felt good about myself. So I guess there's that, you know, like I was, I was traveling the country, meeting new people and expressing what was on my mind.
0: Yeah. It was, it was a self-discovery process for you, right? I it mean, was. It, it yeah. Gave you, I, I think that the biggest thing that I got out of the earlier phases of my career that I wouldn't go back to now because they were just, it was just too cumbersome of a lifestyle. But, but what I got out of it was just this, um, you know, th- this experience of getting to know and meet and, and talk with all of these different people that see themselves as humanist or atheist or secular or agnostic or what have you. And, and um, just, um, you know, just on the one hand, really realizing like I'm not alone in this. And on the other hand, realizing that to any extent that I'm doing it publicly or for a living, there's a responsibility to all those people right? to, to, to do it well in a certain way.
1: So, you know, some of us, uh, some of the listeners don't know you personally and um, perhaps don't know about your career. So I, w- I want to start kind of where I do with so many of my guests and just ask you a little yep. bit about your, your sort of background. And, um, yeah. you know, I know that, you know, you have, um, sort of a secular Jewish background, but I really don't know much more than that. So get, tell us a little bit about your upbringing and so forth.
0: Sure. Sure. So I was born in New York city. Um, I, uh, my family was Jewish, but that was sort of the least interesting thing to me about mm-hmm. our family at that point. Um, it wasn't something that we really talked about very much. Um, I my mom was a refugee. She she came to this country uh, by herself with nothing uh, on two days notice um, when the, the communist revolution uh, came to Cuba. And, um, you know, she she was separated from her family because of American immigration policy for over you know, a couple of years Um, and really deeply traumatized by that. Although Mm. she's, she's an incredible person, vivacious, you know, great sense of humor, very playful, but at the same time, a deep, deeply and fundamentally a survivor of trauma. Right. Um, and, um, and my dad, uh, was a little older by the time I was born and was sick for most of my life until he died when I was 18, Mm. Um, so a lot of his, his life was kind of previous to my birth. Um, he was a kind of spiritual seeker, um, wanted to be a spiritual teacher, wanted to be a writer for the New York times, didn't graduate from college. So made it a little hard. Right, um, right. and, um, you know, we, we lived in a in a neighborhood called Flushing, Queens, New York, that um, was extraordinarily diverse, racially and ethnically, and um, I think it inculcated this curiosity in me about everybody and everything in the world and and how like the world could be this sort of cross between a Starship Enterprise and a you know and, and a United Nations refugee camp yeah. um, and. Um, And yet, um, I I don't think I fully understood until much later how even in a neighborhood where everybody was, you know, sort of poor and creeping up into middle class um, and where we all lived in small apartments and most of our parents were not born in the United States um, among all my friends um, or were born poor in the United States, um, how I still had this what you call white privilege, white male privilege, because, um, you know, I still looked the part at a time when that made all the difference. And so, you know, I had this very conflicted vision of myself as a, as a liberal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because my mom had escaped violent communism, you know, she was a real liberal. She became a hippie after she learned English, um, as a teenager, but she, you know, I don't think she could really bring herself to, to go full on, quote, left, unquote.
1: Right. I mean, my impression of so many Cuban refugees is that they actually, many of them became conservative.
0: Yeah. No, not my mom. Not, not so in interesting. any way, shape or form. Yeah. But, you know, she's <laughs> no Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or whoever, you know, but um, <laughs> but at the same time, um, I think there was a fear of ideology. Right. Okay. In, you know, especially when I was being raised by her, you know, like she she now tells me because I've, you know, I've now become a lot more maybe radical in my politics. And she'll now remind me, you know, your father was really liberal. You know, he <laughs> he would not allow the he wouldn't allow the name Ronald Reagan to be mentioned in our house. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> um But um but I just didn't know that version of my dad. Hmm. You know, I, I just I just didn't get to know him that well before he died. And hmm. so um so for me there was this fear of ideology because um ideology was just scary it was it was brutal it was um it, and and it was the kind of thing that that could keep us um as poor refugees for the mm. rest of our lives so you know there was there was a, a kind of pride for my mom in being able to move up and be mainstream and and you know live a, a decent middle class life and raise me to feel like I had the opportunity to quote unquote do anything or be anything. Mm, mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that I looked like a typical white male politician at that point in my, you know, young life um, didn't, didn't help or didn't hurt, depending on how you look at it. Um, you know, I, I just was raised with this sort of Americanism ideology that, that even if you're a liberal and you're compassionate towards everybody, and you believe that you should be able to marry anybody, man, woman, black, brown, purple, or polka dot, which mm. is, I think literally was said to me as a little kid, <laughs> or, you know, even if, um, you know, never again, as I was taught about the Holocaust means never again for anybody. Right. There was still a fear of like any ideology might again mean that we would end up destitute. Yeah. And like enslaved and, and there was to that a, ideology. Yeah. And there was this there was this feeling that that I wouldn't have to live that life of of fear and destitution and 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 just sort of existential dread that my mom, I think, grew up with. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think so, that is the dream yeah. of classical liberalism. I mean, that it respects everyone. It respects diversity. It's like de- liberal democracy. You know, it's like protects the minority view, you know, and that's that's the vision. And it, it it's a it's a beautiful vision yeah when, when yeah although
0: out. you know I, I was sort of like my my mom would tease me when i was a kid that i was a little bit influenced by the the alex p keaton character yeah um in this in the sitcom family ties oh, yeah. like this you know he's is this kid uh michael j michael j fox yeah. right yeah. yeah who um was being raised by hippie parents but um was you know was pretty conservative as a character um <laughs> And, um, I, oh yeah, uh, when I was 18 years old, when I turned 18, I registered as a Republican
1: <laughs> wow. and,
0: and my, um, my parents were just aghast, absolutely aghast.
1: <laughs> That's great. I mean, I think so. You, we talk about this a lot, I think in, in like conversations that I have about how, you know, conservative parents raise liberal kids and then liberal parents tend sometimes raise conservative kids against their will and both against their will kind of. And I don't know if it's just children trying to differentiate themselves from their parents and not be just like them or they're, or they're compensating in some way for um, something they didn't experience or something. I don't know what it is. I'm not a psychologist. Yeah. I
0: mean, I, I, wanted to be the poster child and superhero of American exceptionalism,
1: Mm, mm.
0: you know, and, and I wanted to do that. I mean, I'm talking when I was 18 years old or so, you know, 16, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. So like the early to mid nineties. Right. Um, I, I wanted to do it in a, in a, in a capital L liberal way. I wanted to be compassionate for all. I wanted to fight for, um, you know, whether it was gay rights or, you know, racial harmony, diversity was something that I was very big on back then. Um, But I just didn't get it when it came to poverty, when it came to really deep rooted systemic injustice that even um, liberal people like me could be advancing
1: right even that notion um, without of it recognizing systemic.
0: it you know i i i didn't i didn't get um how my own preferences and behaviors were causing other people to suffer mm-hmm. because for example when i was a kid growing up in new york city um in junior high school i went to junior high school near jamaica queens Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, which was at the time was a was a tough neighborhood, considered a tough neighborhood, quote unquote, um, in New York City. And um and I I was afraid a lot. I was afraid of of being the victim of sort of physical violence. You know, I I, I still to this day don't make good eye contact with people when I meet them because um I learned in junior high school you really had to avoid eye contact or you could get jumped and mugged on the street. Wow. Um, and, and I had stuff stolen from me repeatedly on a, on a bus that I used to take home from Jamaica, um, or from near Jamaica anyway, um, you know, like earring taken out of my ear, hat taken off of my head coat, taken off of me, hmm. um, that kind of stuff and repeatedly. And, um, and so that was under, uh, mayor David Dinkins in New York city. Um, who talked about the the gorgeous mosaic of diversity in, in New York. He was the first black mayor of New York City. And then Rudy fucking Giuliani <laughs> was elected, this liberal Republican at the time, yeah, uh, was elected mayor of New York City. And at the time, like young me, I thought he was great. Yep. Because he was quote unquote socially liberal at the time.
1: Mm-hmm. hard hard to imagine i know
0: he was he really was though he actually was
1: i mean (laughs) even as even
0: after 9 11 you know that people were singing gone through a sickening devolution but but still i didn't recognize how bad he already was back then yeah um and he um he believed in this broken windows theory of policing the city and and of governing the city where if there was in his mind a small crime right Um, you were you would pursue it and punish it aggressively so as to deter future crime right and so from my ignorant you know privileged perspective as a white kid in a in in a quote-unquote diverse neighborhood Mm -hmm. you know all of a sudden i felt like less threatened um and the subway started getting cleaned of the graffiti and, and there were fewer encounters where I was worried that I was going to get mugged. And, um, I thought, wow, this man's doing a freaking great job. You know, the city's getting better. Look at this. But what I didn't realize of course, was that, um, a lot of that was happening at the expense of terrorizing black people. Right. Better for who? Yeah. Better for who? Um, it was it was terrorizing black people. Mm-hmm. Um, it was uh privileging a certain perspective. Um, you know, it was doubling down on on white supremacy and uh on rising inequality. Yeah. And you know, I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it.
1: Hmm. So coming to the present day, you um just sort of to get this out of the way and then we'll try to connect some of the dots. I mean you you're um humanist chaplain at both Harvard University and MIT, is that right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was having fun riffing on my, you know, my childhood and 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 those experiences because that's stuff I don't usually get to talk about yeah, on, on no. podcast. I love I love, you know, the fact that that these are things that you've thought deeply about. But yeah, I mean to to just give listeners a little bit of um, who the heck I even am. Why am I, why am I talking to them about my, you know, childhood for goodness sake? Like, is this the only thing this guy has to talk about? <laughs> um, um, I was a religion major in college. Um, and, uh, because I was fascinated by, by questions of religion for all sorts of reasons. And then, um, uh, yeah, I, I, became, um, interested in, uh, humanism mm-hmm because i got uh, i discovered the movement of secular humanistic judaism right yeah uh and i thought that, that was fascinating and i spent 5 years getting ordained as a secular humanist rabbi oh wow <clears throat> i had no and idea then, you were a rabbi yeah 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 i'm ordained as a rabbi um and um and so as i was getting Trained as a secular humanist rabbi, a rabbi who who is explicitly an atheist, Mm. I um I I discovered that Harvard had a humanist chaplain. Um, it was Harvard was the first university ever to have a humanist chaplain, and uh, I got to meet him. And we spent hours together, hours and hours over a course of a weekend. And I realized that that's what I wanted to do with my life. And so I kept in touch with him for a few years, became the assistant humanist chaplain in 2004. Um, he retired a year later and I took over for him. Um, and so I've been humanist chaplain at Harvard University for 15 years now and um, and I've been through a whole number of of sort of versions of my career and myself during that time. I've, I feel like I've grown up in the position, um, you know, first as a as a young chaplain, then um, as a passionate organizer of other humanists, and and I wrote a book when I was still about thirty. Um, that was good without God, and um, and then started to try to. Pull together a humanist community movement around the country, um, and um, then opened up a community center um, in Harvard Square. We ultimately, raised a, raised a few million dollars to to, to spend on um, a, a kind of humanist congregation for what we called atheist agnostics and allies, hmm. um, starting in twenty thirteen twenty fourteen, and um, and then closed that congregation after about a thousand meetings. Hmm. In 2018, I remember so clearly. I was like, wow. And, yeah. And, and so we closed that down right as I was all b- adding humanist chaplain at MIT to my portfolio. Um, and when I decided to, to add MIT, I was invited to become a chaplain at MIT in this new uh, senior role that I have there uh, called uh, convener for ethical life, as well as um, humanist chaplain at MIT Um, I I started thinking about how MIT is a tech school and I started thinking about tech Hmm. and I I had this realization for myself that, whoa, tech is more than even religion. Like I got into religion because I thought it was the most influential human institution in the world. Right. And I wanted to study what really made humans tick. And then I realized, you know, 18 years later, um, wow, no, tech has eclipsed religion hmm. as the most influential human institution that we've ever created. And I want to study it. I yeah. want to learn about what it is that we're trying to build and what it is that we're succeeding and failing at building when we're building this thing we call technology. And so I've I've dived in the past couple of years to um, really studying not just humanism, but humanism and technology together um and that's just been fascinating and 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 that's kind of what leads me to you today.
1: Yeah, and then you've had a a run as um a staff writer for uh TechCrunch, right? Yeah, I, I I just finished
0: doing a year as um the the title they gave me ultimately was ethicist in residence uh for TechCrunch, um which means that uh You know, I I was I was given permission to kind of cover whatever whatever ethical issues in in the in the broader field of tech that I wanted to, whether it was um, the ethics of AI or gig work or, you know, uh, immigration uh, enforcement as it was um, aided by by evil technology Hmm. or, um, you know, the future of work, as they call it, um, which I think of as as sort of tech prophecy. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, and, and that role recently ended because money, because, um, you know, TechCrunch, like a lot of other publications these days is, um, uh, you know, doesn't have the money for things that it, that it used to have, um, given the crisis, but, um, but yeah, it was, it's a fascinating, it's been a, it's been a fascinating uh, journey to, mm. to, to work with them.
1: Yeah. I saw your tweets just today about the uh, unfortunate end of that, that role. Yeah. But,
0: but, but it, you know, like, I feel good about it though. I it, like, like I've learned uh, an amazing amount from yeah. working at TechCrunch and, and published like 40 pieces for like 160,000 words. So, uh, you know, I certainly got to put myself out there yeah. uh, for, for them.
1: That's amazing. And I mean, that's, this is another way I think in which your trajectory as a sort of a humanist public intellectual has been a little different than, Some others, you know, so many in the in the sort of formal atheist and secular communities are focused on other really important things, not to take anything away from those. But, um, you know, a lot of lawyers, right, who are doing separation of church and state and Mm -hmm. um, really doing their best to like support the wall of separation as it's beginning to sort of erode and crumble and. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've been reading Catherine Stewart's book and she's going to be yeah. a guest on the show. In, in, in and She's great. Weeks. She's a
0: friend and I love what she does.
1: Yeah, she's fantastic. You know, we've had a few conversations. She's going to speak at the Secular Student Alliance Conference this summer and and uh, she's going to be on the show. And I mean, it's just she's compiled and and like sort of synthesized so much history and also current events in that. So there's a lot of people in the secular community that are doing that work, which is really mm-hmm. important. And then there's, of course, like the sort of straight ahead type atheist Um, type of stuff. And then, I mean, there are people like James Croft who are doing ethics work, um, as a congregational leader. Um, but it's, it's, it's not as often. I mean, I feel like when the, you know, the other area of the secular community is science, right? And tech is sort of Mm -hmm. like the close cousin, um, to science and, and they tend to be, I, I was shocked when I left religion and left my faith and sort of found my way into this weird community that we're a part of. And found like how optimistic everyone was about the future, because I was sort of raised <laughs> to be quite pessimistic about the fu- by pessimistic, but like prophetically optimistic, like the world was doomed. But God was going to save us, you know, in a nutshell. Right, right. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's doomed for everybody else. But for us, because we're going to be saved, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Yeah. yeah. So for me, a, the huge part of the emotional processing of my sort of onset of atheism was really doing the the work of what I would call growing up, like realizing that no one's coming to save me. Mm. Um, I'm on my as own. As
0: Roxanne Gay, re, you know, recently wrote for the New York Times, like recognize that nobody's coming to save us from coronavirus and from systematic racism. So right. I just love, love the echo of that.
1: Yeah, and and this is what I, this for me was a profound. Me raised in a conservative Christian sect, it was for me always this. I always thought of God as this kind of backstop. Like no matter what happens, there's at least this sort of promise. And mm. I describe humanism as learning to live without promises, and and mm. then I would you know I heard Michio Kaku speak once, and I've you know read some Steven Pinker, and I was a you know fan of Sam Harris for a long time, and I was like wow these people have a sort of almost like a religious faith in technology to save the world, mm. and I just couldn't especially especially, and I mean I don't know I'm, I'm certainly no educated critic of. Michio Kaku. I don't. I really don't know much of anything. You would know much more about him, but I heard one like big, big lecture at an auditorium here in Pasadena, and I was like, "Wow, how does he have so much confidence in the future?" Uh, maybe I'm missing something. So I read a book or so of his, and so, but I don't. So I don't think there are very many humanists out there writing and speaking about sort of, sort of almost the pessimistic side of kind of where this could go if we don't pay close attention to um, how we are implementing new developments in science and technology.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that I think hasn't changed for me with all the evolution that I feel like I've been through as a humanist, what hasn't changed is I got involved with humanism and declared myself to myself as a humanist because of a fascination with what it is to be a human being. Right. With, with, with this feeling of, wow, I'm, I'm human and we're human and, and we have a sense of what that means and, and we get to explore it. Mm. Um, and, and, and I wanted to, and still want to explore my own humanness in any and every way that I can figure out how to do so. Um, but the the change to me has been, um, this you know going from a sense of um, uh, you know of, of of liberalism will will redeem humanity to a sense of um, a sense of how. You know how, how much work we all really have to do hmm. um and, and how how buried under um some thousands and thousands of years of, of mistakes we are um along with all the good that we've done and and the 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 things that we've learned
1: i love that i mean there's so much humility there and i i find humility in in such short supply really everywhere um, one of the criticisms that I onboarded pretty quickly as a new atheist, um, not a capital N capital a new atheist, but as a fresh mm-hmm. new atheist. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. Like a, like a, like a baby vampire. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Um, I hadn't learned the ways of the force yet, but um, was just the critique that Christians um, have a kind of arrogance about their beliefs and, and I, I, you know, I, I, again, any broad sweeping generalization is not going to apply to, you know, everyone, of course, but I could recognize a certain kind of arrogance in my own Christianity in my own sense of knowing the truth and having this confidence in my faith. Um, but, you know, lo and behold, that arrogance shows up all over the place, whether you're it's a sort of a scientific arrogance, um, you can almost imagine, you know, these Early race scientists, you know in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, so confident that they had really figured out what race is you know and had really uh, you know cracked the code or the eugenicists yeah. who are like figured out they're such so, so confident in their scientific research that they can you know breed defects out of humans the way that people try to do with other things and and then there's arrogance in in a kind of um a philosophical arrogance around. Um, atheism and as well that crops up all the time, and it's it's a little well, disheartening.
0: Well, let me let me speak about arrogance here from a place of personal experience, right? <laughs> Not to say that I'm a, a formerly arrogant person or a, you know a deconverted arrogant person. That would be I'm arrogant sure of you to say. Sure, I'm still I'm sure I'm still an arrogant person in in many ways, but but I, I think it, I think it's safe to say as somebody who used to be a hell of a lot more uncontrollably arrogant than I than I currently am. <laughs> um, I um, I think arrogance is all about fear. Mm. You know, I I think I mean, for example, not to say that I was technically a narcissist or that anybody's technically a narcissist, but you know, we all have some degree of of narcissism, whether healthy or and, and unhealthy narcissism, mm-hmm. and really we forget that the technical definition of narcissism is really um, it's kind of a state in which we are in, a person is in so much pain uh, for feeling inadequate, for feeling unworthy of love, of of uh, compassion, of care, um, that they can't even bear to feel um, that much of, 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 of self-hatred and, and self-doubt. Um, and so they overcompensate it by not feeling those feelings on a conscious level at all, and instead bringing into their conscious mind and into their interactions with other people a total overcompensation and um, self-love, self, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, self-pride, whatever. Right. Um, and and it, you know, that's that's I think at the heart of what a lot of what we call arrogance. It's mm. it's people feeling inadequate, feeling, feeling self-hatred, feeling self-loathing and doubt. And, and they manifest it in, in this overconfidence that, that kills.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's really true. And I think the more, I mean, again, here's comes humanism. I mean, I think being self-aware, understanding who we are in relationship to one another, but also in relationship to ourselves, um, is an ongoing lifelong process. Like we never really like the idea that, you know, and I want to st- talk to you a little bit about what's going on in our world. It would be weird of us to talk yeah. tonight and not really... Well, I feel
0: like we're already talking about we it. We really yeah, are, right?
1: Which is what I'm thinking, which is that, like, for me to think that I'm going to one day, and I know some people are going to really hate this, but for me to think that one day I'm going to just not be a racist in a, in that subtle... I don't mean by racist. I don't mean, like, outwardly hate, hateful towards people yeah. of color. I, I mean... Yeah. You know, those internal, uh, internalized, like what you said about your childhood growing up, like you benefited from white privilege long before you ever knew or anyone was using that language. Long before I even understood what it was to be a white person. Right, exactly. To even understand your, I I remember having that conversation with someone early on in my own sort of self-understanding where they said to me, what does it mean for you to be white? Like, what does whiteness mean to you? And I didn't even understand what the question was. I was like, it doesn't mean yeah. anything to me. And they're like, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything to you. Like, you don't even know. Yeah. You know that.
0: Yeah, any- you're, you're a fish. You're swimming in the water and you've just been asked what's water
1: like. Yeah, exactly. Whereas people of color every day are faced with their um, their differentness, their otherness, and, and what that means for them politically and socially, Right. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, obviously anyone listening to this, um, when it comes out, you know, we're just on the two weeks post the death of, of George Floyd and um, two solid weeks of, of um, uprisings around the country and around the world, frankly, um, protesting um, police violence, but more than police violence, really the way that um, white supremacy hasn't gone away and that we, I think as white liberals have sometimes consoled ourselves that we have sort of eliminated these things and we've moved beyond them and they've just gone underground and we've done, done better at, you know, coming up with euphemisms for things and, um, sort of masking, uh, over what's really happening. And then it bursts out, right? When it, it the pressure builds, it just explodes. And, um, you know, I think one of the things we're grappling with at the Secular Student Alliance that certainly I'm thinking about is, you know, what does it mean to be secular or mm. humanist in this moment? What do you yeah. What are you thinking about that?
0: Well, I, I, you know, as a you know white male who is secular and humanist in this moment, I think that there's some parallel between the two for me because. Um, you know, I was raised with uh, with a sense of myself as the hero. You know, uh, there's a a famous book um, by uh, a psychologist, a mythologist uh, named Joseph Campbell uh, called The Myth of the Birth of the Hero,
1: hmm.
0: um, which was a kind of Bible for me as a teenager and in my very early 20s. And, you know, it was the idea that 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 each person is on the hero's journey. Right. Um as, as represented, whether, you know, it's by, by the story of Moses in in the Hebrew Bible or of Jesus in the new Testament or of Luke Skywalker, um, or, you know, Optimus prime or whoever.
1: Right. (laughs) Right.
0: And, um, and what I didn't realize was that I assumed that about myself, but I didn't necessarily know how to give a shit. Hmm whether that was equally true for other people you know i i mean it wouldn't have taken me too much effort to look around and really feel deep pain at the fact that other people just by by the fact that they didn't look like me and uh you know and they weren't socialized like me like they they didn't have access to that that myth that in my mind was supposed to be for quote all humans unquote and um It's interesting because a lot of the people who up to this point in history, not necessarily in the future, but up to this point in history, a lot of the people who have affiliated themselves with the, quote, secular movement, unquote,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, do have similar background to you and I. And and were raised to think of themselves as the hero and and were raised to look at Luke Skywalker on the screen and think that that can and should be me and it will be me. And Mm -hmm. it is me. Right. In some way, you know. And so we're now kind of sidelined as a movement because I don't think there's really any scenario in 2020 where we, the people that currently constitute the organized secular movement, end up as the heroes <laughs> in the story of what the hell is going on in the United States right now. Right. We can be we can be an important you know, role player, we can be supporting actors, but we're not the hero of this story and, and nothing that we can do will or should make us into the hero. And in fact, the the more that, you know, if we try like, Oh, the humanist movement, we humanists, like we're going to try to be the hero of all of this now, like that would make us into
1: colossal assholes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen it in other sec in other uh, sort of activist movements right now, you know, this, um, you know, in the nonprofit world, as you well know, everyone's always trying to raise money, and it's mm-hmm. been really remarkable to see nonprofits that are not focused on racial justice um, say, "Please donate to these five black activist organizations." You know, or mm-hmm. or there's been, I think, a real outpouring of solidarity. Um, you know, solidarity. it's certainly not perfect, yes. you know, but but yeah, I think I think you're right, especially. In the fundraising world and all of that, like we're we're always trying to paint ourselves as the ones without whom this would all go to shit, right? So, um, and that does feed a certain kind of narcissism, as you say, and and a certain kind of um, self-importance. That it can be really destructive when combined with latent white supremacy, and and white privilege. That I already, I mean, in fact, I just, um. You know, I, I'm, I'm very involved in local politics here in Pasadena, California, and I'm a part of the tenants union, and our tenants union is really diverse. And, um, and I'm, there's no, uh, official leader. It's a very flat structure. We're all volunteers. Um, we have sort of conveners of committees, but those even rotate and change. So there's nobody, there's no hierarchy. So, you know, we're all pitching in to get stuff done. And just recently, one of the, um, the black tenants was, was doing some um, work and asked for my help on something. And instead of just helping her with what she asked me to do, I also misunderstood some things, but so my, first of all, my misunderstanding of what she needed, um, which probably grew out of my haste in not trying to thoroughly understand what she needed. And then I went beyond what she asked me to do, to do some other things to what I thought would help and to fix things. Right. Hmm. And and then there's this, a little bit of um, heat coming back to me from from her and I didn't understand it, you know? And I was like, well, mm-hmm. I was just trying to help. And so we had a conversation that was pretty intense and it, I went away from that conversation f- for about three days of, of introspection, you know? Um, all the while, protests around the death of George Floyd are happening, right? And I'm like sitting with my arrogance. I'm sitting with mm-hmm. my assumption that you know, I'm going to fix this. Even if it's, I don't know, like spell checking a document or something like nobody asked me to do that. That's not my necessarily yeah. my role. Um, and, but I just assumed that I could step into that role. And um, it's not, you know, I'm not saying it's always wrong to see a need yeah, and yeah. fill it, you know, but. Well,
0: I mean, it's and it's also like, it's not that we're saying, I, I think that, you know, white men are the only people who are capable of arrogance or, or narcissism or anything else i sure. mean you know we're all human at the end of the day yeah. it's just that by by being told and then by telling yourself that you're in a special class of people um you know that actually ends up making us more likely to make certain kinds of mistakes that's all yeah um so you know it's it's like it, it's like um One, one thing that I really liked, uh, that, that was tweeted by, uh, the, the scientist and writer, uh, Shonda Prescott Weinstein, um, uh, one of my favorite writers, um, was, uh, she, you know, she's a real, real radical, um, on Twitter and, and in life. And she said, um, it's not that the fact that, that, that countries with women leaders, um, are doing better under COVID means that, um, women leaders are necessarily better. It's that countries that are open to having women leaders are necessarily better.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, because they they have crossed a kind of threshold. Yeah, where they're not, they don't give a damn
0: about, you know, this myth that it has to be a man anymore. They're just open to the best leadership, the best collaboration, the best cooperation that it can be. And sometimes it'll be men in those roles. Sometimes it'll be women. Sometimes it'll be, you know, um, non-binary folks but but the point is that that the, the point is is to lead the community in the best most effective most compassionate way possible
1: yeah no I think that's really really insightful um so I mean w- where are you focusing your energies right now like how are you thinking about your own personal development or in in the last couple of weeks but also like your, Public self, like where mm. where are you feeling led, or Len, well, It's a very sort of Christian thing to say. No, feeling I like it though. It's feeling fine. inspired, I guess to to be involved, and maybe where are you recognizing that it's not your place to be involved? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm more sure, probably sure. reflecting my own. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm mean, well. I mean, with
0: the not my place to be involved. I mean, one one thing, for example, is is just that um, I've really struggled in the past couple of weeks with, um, with being afraid to put my family in danger. Hmm. Um, you know, where I, um, I do feel really scared, um, for my family around coronavirus and, and just feeling like, you know, I don't know that I'm ready to, to take us out into the streets yet because, um, I'm just, you know, I'm scared that we'll, that we'll get sick. Right, um, but at the same time, uh, you know, and, and I have a I have a very young son, and I've been um, in a lot of ways playing the primary caregiver role in 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 my family unit. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's it was more like I can't get myself sick because you know I'm the one that this kid looks to for care on a day to day basis, right. more than anybody else you know, so that, that's, that's been, that's been hard for me, you know, um, because I feel like, well, it's it's a lot harder on a lot of other people and, you know, maybe I should take more risks than I'm taking. Right. Um, even though, you know, he's, he's too young. I, I, in my judgment to be safe out at a, a protest just yet. Right. Um, and, um, and so, but, you know, but again, a lot of people are, are fundamentally unsafe. And so what, what's my responsibility? That's just something that I just think a lot about. Me I struggle too. With. Yep. So, um, but what I'll say is this, um, you know, I, I had been, I was granted by, um, the board of directors that governs the the humanist chaplaincy at Harvard and MIT. Uh, I, I they granted me a, a 12 month paid fellowship they offered me um uh six months of like on my full pay which by the way and ain't that much but you know that's (laughs) that's another that's another thing um uh uh six months of my full pay or 12 months of half of my pay um to to go and explore this um concept of of humanism and technology and um I was surprised to take 12, you know, to, that I found myself wanting to take 12 months away because I really had been a workaholic for the longest time. And, and, uh, you know, my whole identity was, was around that, that job. Yeah. And to, at first to step away from it in this major way felt really weird. Hmm. Um, but in a, in a sense, I, I now understand that that's why they they gave me the option of the sabbatical in the first place it was because, you know, I, I think that the people that, that I work for, um, knew that it would be healthy for me to, to begin to see myself in some other ways and and that I'd actually be able to do a better job for them and for our communities, um, having broadened my horizons. Hmm. And so I was, I was, you know, researching technology and writing about technology. At one point I got to break national news about technology or, you know, really speak to a lot of people that, that you call the, that, that, that my editors called the, um, the Silicon Valley elite about what it is that they're trying to build.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, and I love that. And I was developing all these different stories and I was like really getting to the point where um, my ability to write a book about that from a humanist perspective um, was peaking
1: mm-hmm.
0: right as COVID hit. Wow. And so a lot of that was had to be put on hold um you know there's a day in sort of early mid-March where Harvard and MIT just shut down. Yep. And and I realized that that day 9/11 and the Boston Marathon bombing were big big days in my personal life as a, you know in addition to the, the life of the nation. Um and I was on campus like sort of both of those days. Actually I was at the the marathon when the bombing hit. Mm. Um, but, but I, I immediately sort of walked back and started getting to work on campus issues that day. Um, and, um, and I realized immediately that this was going to be at the very least, you know, the third big day in my professional life. And, you know, it maybe has turned out to be the biggest of them all. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, 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 at that point, I immediately put my sabbatical on, on sabbatical and got, into this business of how does a chaplain of any kind Mm -hmm. um, much less a humanist chaplain uh, help people in an environment where people are just looking around afraid, confused, uncertain, unmoored, devastated, uh, suffering, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just threw myself into that work and, and making it even weirder was the fact that I had been studying the ethics of technology but I had to do all of that chaplaincy work mediated by technology because right. I couldn't see anybody. So here I am on Twitter and Facebook and Zoom and, and Microsoft and all these companies that, that I had been studying how deeply flawed they are ethically and humanistically. And now I'm restricted to the use of them to, to do anything at all.
1: Really illustrating and, how enslaved we are to that, that stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's illustrating my, my thesis that, that it has become tech has become the largest religion that human beings have ever created. And, and we are um, the, the God of tech is so clever and so powerful that he doesn't even give a damn whether we worship him consciously or not because he knows he knows that we unconsciously worship him. And that's, He's. It's a smarter strategy than any god ever before has has designed. And I, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm being metaphorical here, right? Right? Like, I don't believe that there's ever been a real deity, but metaphorically, this is this is a powerful freaking deity. Yeah. And and so, you know, it was it was this bizarre experience for for a couple months, few months. And you know, I had just been saying to my board in um, May, like, okay, guys, I, I I've been working, um in March and April and now May on helping people. But I think it's starting to get to the point where we're kind of digging in for the long haul. And so if you don't mind, in June, I'm going to go back to my sabbatical and keep writing my book. Because I think June, July, August are going to be a little more quiet, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry to laugh. But you know, as soon as that as soon as I'd said that, and I had just turned in a, a first draft of an op-ed for the Boston Globe that was meant to sort of summarize my experience on, on sabbatical from sabbatical, meant to summarize um, my, my experience of three months of, of chaplaincy from afar um, under social distancing, and George Floyd is murdered. Mm first degree murdered by the way in case anybody wants to know my opinion on that
1: Mm, um well i mean you know as far as i can tell right as far as anyone can Um, ever tell intention yeah yeah
0: yeah. um and um and so here we are here all of us are right it's not just about me this is like anybody that was feeling any kind of normalcy whatsoever um and we all know how Pro, well, I know and you know, I think, how problematic the word normal is in this context. Right. Um, but anybody that was feeling any kind of peacefulness or any kind of um, exhalation, hmm. to use a term that refers to breathing, which uh, uh, one George Floyd was not able to do. Right. Um, in late May, we we were reminded of how precarious all of our lives are in general and and in particular in the society yeah and we were reminded that there is literally no peace until there is justice right no justice no, no peace, peace is not a slogan so much as it is a poetic expression of a fundamental truth of our lives no justice
1: mm-hmm. no peace yeah yeah, and I think the you know we, you see it repeated throughout history. You know, the underclass can only take so much, and then this injustice manifests itself in a, a disruption of the peace. Um, you know, just in our lifetimes, we've seen it r- repeatedly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really a bizarre moment, and I think, but I think a moment for for both, you know, this sort of praxis principle that i try to implement in my own life you know of of action and reflection and so i'm you know i'm acting a lot i'm doing a lot in um you know for instance today you know our public safety committee of city council met to talk about civilian oversight of the police department which they had shelved Mm -hmm. three years ago four years ago Mm. and which i campaigned on um Bringing that conversation back, and it was brushed aside mm-hmm. repeatedly. Not and and, and not even. I mean, brushed aside is actually the right way to put it because it wasn't even seriously considered. Like there was one of the sort of boilerplate questions that we would get asked at forums, and, and they would say, "Well, you know, our police department's doing good, and it is doing better than some, right?" But um, you know, today they met to re- open up the conversation again about civilian oversight and. You know, we were, you know, the, one of the groups I work work with in the city, you know, organized a bunch of public comments. There was probably two hours of read, you know, they're still meeting on Zoom and everything. And so, like, city staff read out loud two hours of public comments in two major chunks, not all together. But um, it was really an outpouring. You know, and some of those comments were like, I unequivocally support the police and we need to give them more money. You know, so there were those comments as well. <laughs> but um yeah yeah so there's the action part like where it's like this is you know the iron is hot and can be molded you know in these moments and then there's also for me at least and i'm sure for so many people maybe everyone this desire to really go back and educate myself about things that i didn't learn as a younger person you know about Mm -hmm. the riots in the 60s and um civil unrest even in the 90s so in the 90s Mm -hmm. when um the Rodney King uh, beating happened and those police officers were uh, exonerated by the court. I was at a fundamentalist uh, Bible college in Northern California. And my dad lived in Southern California. And to my shame, I barely remember it even happening. Like Mm. I remember that that it happened. And I remember seeing the video of him being beat up by those cops when the video came out, but it didn't, even register on my radar as a human being what was happening that's how mm. like isolated yeah. and, and shut yeah, away yeah. from society it's possible. I, was. I mean there are a lot of bubbles in this country
0: yeah and it's really possible to live inside of one yeah for at least for a, a long period of time until it pops yeah um but one thing that i really admire about what you're doing now And then in some ways I'm, I'm intrigued by the possibility of emulating what you're doing right now is your involvement very much from a humanist perspective as I see it Mm -hmm. in local civic life and local progressive politics. Right. Um, That it, it has occurred to me and I, we both read um or or have engaged with Martin Haglund's book This mm. Life. And I, you know, I know you did a great interview with him and and um you know you've spoken really powerfully about about things related to to, to that, you know, the, the issues that he brings up. Um but this idea that I used to believe that the best way that a humanist involved in the humanist movement could express a commitment to humanist values and, and a humanist movement was through building a local community of humanists. Right. You know, I, I was really, I spent a decade dedicating my life to the emulation of the religious congregation by atheists and agnostics. Um, from a specifically humanist perspective, and I'm proud of a lot that was accomplished under that that banner and that that rubric. but I have come more to believe at the moment not that that, that anybody should stop doing that work mm-hmm. if they you know if they feel motivated to and they feel like they've got a good context to do it in because I think it's still great work. But for myself, anyway, for me personally, I've come to feel that the best way that I know to express my my commitment to these things that we call humanist values and, and this movement that we call humanism um, is by getting involved in the messy, step-by-step uh often plagued by hypocrisy and, 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 and compromise and um, rancor uh, and ignorance, but still this, this work of building a demos, of building um, a democracy, of building a, a, a system of, of jurisprudence, of, of laws yeah. uh, by which we govern our, our society, of, of building a dialogue – among humans around science and critical thinking and, and, and just incrementally making life better through more cooperation, collaboration. And like humanists, again, I don't think that we're ever, at least in the short term and, and, you know, going to be the stars, the heroes in a classical sense of that work. But on an optimistic note, I think that we can be significant players in the ensemble cast that that kind of work requires. Mm -hmm. I think that we can be, um, as a movement, you know, we can get involved in civic work and be one of the actors in the show that people really show up excited to hear and see. Mm -hmm. Because I think that as a movement, we actually are very well disposed to some of the, the key ideas that, that need to be upheld in order to, to, to have a functioning democracy.
1: Yeah. No, I think that's really profound. And I mean, I, even when I was a Christian, I felt this sense that it was very difficult for, it's difficult for people to, um, to keep attention of, we, we would describe ourselves as a community for the sake of the world. And, Mm it's and i think it's easy to err in one direction or the other like to be a community this inward facing sort of you know to i guess put a little bit of a pejorative label on it kind of this kumbaya experience where we feel good about ourselves and our relationships with one another which is super important of course like i i thrive on healthy relationships with others you know i i wouldn't be the person i am Tomorrow, if they ended right now, you know, I mean, it would affect me immediately. Um, mm-hmm. But then to do to see those things as not existing for their own sake, but for the in you know from my Christian days for the blessing of the world, you know, or for you know in more secular terms, I think for the um, the the betterment of society uh, to create more peace and more equity and more harmony and more thriving, human, human flourishing, um, not just human flourishing from like a mind trick where we learn some positive psychology tricks and make ourselves feel better. Um, but actual material, um, improvements to people's lives, which then yield that sort of positive feeling that we all sort you know, crave, you know, that dopamine hit that we're all looking for. Um, you know, and, and I, and I do worry, that um, I gave a talk at the at the American Humanist Association a few years ago at their convention um, about materialism and humanism, basically Marxism and humanism, and and I said, you know, I feel like humanism is currently, and maybe always has been, I don't know, but there have been pockets of of, of radicalism, but I, I think by and large, humanism has been too concerned with like bourgeois interests, you know, of. Um, human thriving of the sort that can exist when you're well off and well put together and have a good education. And we talk about science. We talk about, um, you know, community service, which is this kind of like simplistic giving back, um, philanthropy. I know you, you, uh, spent some time with Anand, uh, and you know, his book winners take all and, you know, that type of sort of liberal thinking around what it means to be humanistic Instead of saying, look, as atheists, we don't think there's any supernatural. <clears throat> so and not all atheists are materialists, but let's just say for the sake of simplicity that there's a kind of a generic materialism going on when you don't have a sense of super materialism. Like there's no sort of outside there, you know, and yeah. and, and so then the only thing that we can affect, you know, if if we don't believe in a spiritual realm that we can affect, the only thing we can affect as people is the physical realm in which we live, which means if we want people to be happier we should help them make more money like we should give them a better minimum wage you know we should give yeah. them health care that's how we make people happier not by teaching them some meditation trick or some kind of McMindfulness mindfulness or something you know and and the right. mindfulness can be helpful along the way but i think you know well with- the
0: mindfulness is is i mean it in to- at times is taught to let's say poor people marginalized people to help them cope with their stress but usually what the mindfulness ends up being is something that's taught to the privileged people to help them learn an actually an extremely effective technique for drowning out their, their doubts as to, you know, whether or not they're actually oppressing the other people that don't have access to such wonderful opportunities to just sit and meditate.
1: Right. The ethical, you know, rationality of what they're they're doing. (laughs) Who? Harris. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. Like, or 10% happier. That guy, like, um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give, I'll give Dan Harris a little bit more of a pass than I give Sam Yeah, Harris. yeah, no, for sure. You know, D- Dan and I have had some good interactions and I, you know, I think, I think he's, I think he's trying a little harder than, than, um, Mr. Sam Harris is to, to explore that stuff. But, um,
1: one of my, I'll give a little plug to one of my favorite podcasts these days is Citations Needed with, um, Nima Shirazi and Adam Johnson. Um, and they, like, if you, I mean, I think they're like the rational um, version of like the dirtbag left, you know, in a way, like, I think they have the potential to be the dirtbag left, but they don't. They're like um, very uh, thoughtful, very like deep research. And they recently did a um, an episode on um, positive psychology and sort of its historical roots and the way that it's used to prop up the status quo and it's, yeah. it's it was pretty and and pretty revealing.
0: and i like i'll just i mean mea culpa in a lot of ways like like i i was part of that too sure um, me too you know I, I i was absolutely part of that too uh i'm sure i'm still part of it in a lot of ways that i'm still trying to process um and work on um and uh you know it, it it's hard. I, I think when one thing that I'd like to have a whole separate conversation with you about at some, some other point is um, I, I find myself obsessing a lot about um, what it would look like. Like, okay, so mm. what, what is the, what is our life actually going to be like if, and when it is more just and more equitable. Mm. And I, you know, I will say this, like, the optimistic, hopeful side of me on that question, you know, sort of looks at pandemic life and thinks like, okay, well there, maybe there are some things from here that we can take from it. You know, like, um, like I was, um, talking to my mom today is my mom's now in the house with us trapped here, as opposed to being trapped in New York by herself where she was. (laughs) And, um, and I was saying like, okay, you know, we, we really do probably eat better food and enjoy our food more now under the pandemic than we did before. And she said, yeah, yeah, I think so too. And it's this idea that we have a lot fewer options now about how to eat and what to eat and where to eat. And it, it raised some hope for me that the fact that one has more options um does not necessarily mean that one will have a better and more meaningful or more enjoyable life and in fact sometimes it can actually right mean the opposite right but you don't want to take options away from people without regard for their agency and and their you know their needs yeah or just for the sake of it or whatever it's a fine line you know like like I, you know, I, I may be farther left than I ever was, but I still, you know, I still am the child of uh, a, a refugee from from Castro's communism. And I, you know, and I never want to end up as Stalin, you right. know, like oh, and, and so, you know, who gets to decide what gets taken away um, is something that I'm concerned with. And and um, and I think we really, really need a healthy, democratic, um, egalitarian, compassionate um, dialogue around so that we, we can figure it out together as opposed to just, you know, stripping rights from people or, or being stripped of our rights.
1: Yeah, no, it's a really important conversation. And I, you know, I think I crave that conversation too, because I don't have like answers, you know, of course, but it would be great to have a, a group of people to think with about that. And, and not only what it would look like, but how we get from here to there and what kind of engagements need to happen now in order to, maybe
0: that's what the, maybe that's what a big part of the humanist and secular movement looks like in the next 10, 20 years. Maybe, Mm. maybe we really work hard. A lot of us together on thinking about those questions and we make a really meaningful contribution to civic life more broadly in this country and beyond by, by being passionate and forward thinking about, about finding answers and solutions that work on, on some of those questions.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's a a brilliant uh, insight. And I think, you know, vision, I think of, of where this could go and where I hope it it may go. And we're not going to bring everyone with us. I think that's obvious already. I think people are, you know, the, secular communities famously fractured in the last you know, five years around various social issues and social justice warriors and whatnot. But I've really come to terms with that and really felt like um, I'm kind of okay with it.
0: Yeah. With it I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to build commonly common ground overly hard. No, you know? I'm not like, either. Like, it's like,
1: there's plenty of people I, with whom we can have this conversation. I mean, already. put it
0: this way, put it this way. If there's some atheist young person at Harvard or MIT where I serve as chaplain Hmm. and they're a libertarian or a Republican or whatever, Mm -hmm. but they are suffering from some issue that directly relates to their atheism, their secularism or whatever. Um, and it's not about their politics, but it's about like whether it's discrimination against Mm -hmm. them because they're an atheist or whether it is, um, Uh, They're suffering because their parents um, are shunning them or their family shunning them because they're an atheist or, you know, they're trying to take a religion class and they're not being given full, you know, full, full, you know, equal treatment by their professor because they're coming at it from an atheist perspective. Like, I will fight for that person so hard and I will not care that their politics and mine are different. Right. Um, They are. They're my people. That's my job. And I will I will fight for them until they're given better treatment, Mm -hmm. no matter what. Of course. But beyond that, beyond that kind of incident where I'm doing my job, when it comes to like personal preference issues and sort of what kind of broader movement am I trying to build, I'm okay with the fact that not everybody is going to like this kind of version
1: of humanism that you and I are talking about today. Right. And I think we just have to be okay with that and just forge on and I think people will see it. Not everyone's an early adopter. And I think as it builds and because I also think leftists and I'm not trying to say you're a leftist, um, but I think leftists have a lot to learn still about what it would mean to be in the center. You know, like if if the left ever had power in this country, they have to now govern, you know, and not just be rabble rousers from the margins. And I think. That's a, a huge shift and um, something that we're a long ways away from still. Well, I have taken right. up a lot of your your night, and um,
0: this is great. This yeah. is great. I love talking to you. Um, I, I'd be very curious to see how your audience you know receives the conversation and if people have questions, um, comments, whatever. I hope they'll find me on Twitter and you know tweet their thoughts at me. I I, I would love to engage further around these things
1: well greg thanks so much for um for taking the time tonight and just sort of rambling with me about so many different topics um it's been a lot of fun and we'll have to do it again soon yeah yeah i I love
0: talking to you ryan um keep up the the wonderful work i'm so glad that you're out there doing it um you you give me strength by by what you're doing and uh and, and you know look forward to talking again
1: Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you made it all the way to the end, a little bit longer episode today, but I hope it was worth it. I listened back through this episode a week or so after recording it, and one of the things that really stood out to me was Greg's comments about the much-talked-about hero's journey and his realization that this is not a time in which many of us who have lived with massive privilege are going to be the heroes of the stories being written right now. Mainstream organized humanism, which, by the way, gets a massively deserved dressing down in Sakivu's new book, is not going to be the hero of the story being written right now in the United States. There's a lot to process there for me, and maybe for you too, and I hope you'll take the time to do that work and let me know how it goes. Anyway, I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. Perhaps, as you were listening, you thought of someone who should hear this. Please share it with them. The single greatest way people find out about the Life After God podcast is from listeners like you sharing it with their friends and family, sharing it on social media, and just passing the word along. To learn more about Life After God and to link up with our social media accounts and just stay in touch, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you can join our email newsletter and browse the back catalog of episodes that's always available to you for free. If this podcast is meaningful to you and has been a source of inspiration, please join the group of members and patrons who make it possible by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com lifeaftergod. The price of a coffee per month goes so much further than you can imagine and grows the total base of contributors. In this way, more people take what we're doing seriously and we reach a wider audience. Thank you again for tuning in and seriously, drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast.